resorts, and seasonal fun at its many destinations. Today, author and historian Nancy Shepard will take us on a trip down memory lane to visit some of the beloved but lost attractions of Hampton Roads, including Buckrow Beach and Ocean View amusement parks, to learn more about the places that brought so much joy to many but are no more. Nancy E. Shepard is an award-nominated nonfiction author, historian, public speaker, and photojournalist. She spent several years working with the weekly newspaper Yorktown Crier, Pocosin Post, serving as staff writer, photojournalist, social media manager, and as editor-in-chief. She's currently a freelance editor for Static Media, which gives her the time to engage in her passion as a writer and historian of her native Hampton Roads. She is the author of several books, including The Airship Roma Disaster in Hampton Roads, about which she contributed an article in the most recent issue of Virginia History and Culture, our member magazine. That's also available in the shop if you want to grab a copy. Hampton Roads Murder and Mayhem, Abandoned Tidewater, Forgotten Relics of Southeastern Virginia, and the subject of today's lecture, Lost Attractions of Hampton Roads. She is one of our favorite speakers, so please give a warm VMHC welcome to Nancy Shepard. It's always nice when I get called a favorite. I'll take that gold star today. Um, anyway, I just want to thank you all for coming out. I know it's a bit blistery outside, so it's a good day to be inside and enjoying the air conditioning. And I would like to thank the Virginia Museum of History and Culture for having me back. Um, I'm surprised they wanted me back. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and I look forward to talking with you today about this wonderful subject. Um, so today we're going to talk about the different, as Graham said, the different parks and places that built my home, the Tidewater or Hampton Roads. It depends on who you ask, and we'll talk about that in a second. And nothing quite taps into the sentimental vein, quite like thinking back to those happiest memories of childhood, your teenage years. What was that first roller coaster you rode? What was that restaurant you had your first date at? And where did you and your friends hang out on hot summer afternoons? What were these beautiful moments of youth that make you think back and smile? And today we're going to talk about some of those places. Now, Hampton Roads, which we'll clarify where we're talking about in a second, is a place that's built on two things, and that's the military and tourism. Today, we're going to primarily focus on the latter of these two with military kind of dashed in. We'll join Teddy Roosevelt at a World's Fair. We'll take a spin on rides at Ocean View and Buckrow Beach Parks. We'll dig into the Old West that was briefly alive in Virginia Beach. And we'll trace the roots of Tidewater's vibrant tourism history while begging the question, if these places no longer exist physically, are they ever really lost? So as Julie Andrews would say, let's start at the very beginning. Now, who knows where Hampton Roads or Tidewater is? Good. Um, for those who don't, this is, you have to excuse my fun little graphic here that I have, the southeast, most southeastern corner of our commonwealth. Now, it's known by two different monikers. A lot of us natives still call it the Tidewater, but officially we're called Hampton Roads, but that's a story for a different day. Uh, so today we're going to be concerning ourselves with primarily Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Hampton, but the other places include our York County. I live in Yorktown, wonderful place. James City County, City of Williamsburg, Suffolk, um, and Portsmouth we're going to briefly touch on. Oh, gosh. Um, okay, there we go. Ah. There we go, sorry about that. The centuries following the founding of Jamestown 1607 were host to an ever blossoming population. Of course, there were struggles. If you were here for my murder and mayhem lecture a few years ago, you might remember some of those stories. Uh, the Tidewater, again, as most of us locals call it, was ripe with possibilities. We have temperate climate, though today is arguably not that. Uh, we also have many natural resources, whether it's the fisheries, the oysters, the um, various 
different things you can get there. On top of that, we also had a wonderful place for there to be an industrial port with naturally deep harbors that went into the Chesapeake Bay and eventually into the Atlantic Ocean. It was just a wonderful place for industry to develop, for people to grow and families to be built for generations. The thing that defined the beginning of our story would be railroads and ferries. In this era of transportation, these two were the best way to cross any distances and waterways. In 1827, Virginia joined neighboring Maryland to build a line for the B&O Railroad to connect Baltimore to the Ohio River Valley. And in 1835, the Portsmouth and Weldon Railroad, also known as the Seaboard Roanoke Railroad, which this is uh, actually an engine from that railroad, was the first of these lines to reach Norfolk. What this led to was a creation of this railway streetcar culture that's going to be very important for our stories today. And transporting not only goods, but people across and into the greater Tidewater area. In 1883, the Elizabeth City and Norfolk Railroad officially changed its name to what it's known today as the Norfolk and Southern Railroad. And this picture is in my beloved Yorktown. Um, however, it must be noted that Hampton Roads is an area that's also defined by our waterways. A train could not easily cross these very large swaths of water on, with bridges and whatnot, so ferries were the natural way that you needed to get across there. Now, there were ferries that connected Norfolk to Old Point Comfort in Hampton, and then this one that connected Yorktown to Gloucester. And, and now this is from the 20th century, so it's a little later than the period we're talking about. But these seem to be, seemed like a more reliable methods of transportation than the bipedal way that people got around. But the truth was they weren't exactly the safest, though safer, and they were the furthest things from predictable. So when you get to your stop and all of a sudden the train doesn't show up, what do you do? You stay at hotels and hostilities. So as a result of this, the hotels, hostilities, and boarding house industry began to pop up along these railway lines and ferry stops. Travel was next to impossible for average folks in this late 19th, early 20th century era. Modes of transportation were not practical nor affordable, and there were too many responsibilities for most Americans right back at home with the agrarian industry that was going on around here. Generally, those who came to Hampton Roads in this earlier period were here for business, infrastructure, and military, one including the building of what is Fort Monroe. So these were simple boarding houses, little hostels and whatnot for people to stay at. In 1822, the Hygieia Hotel, pictured here, was built in Hampton and was founded for the building of Fort Monroe. Some notable figures that stayed there include John Tyler and... Richmond's Edgar Allan Poe. Now, during the Civil War, there were businessmen that would be down here from up north prior to the war's actual um, massive engagement, and they were stuck in these boarding houses in these port cities. One described a harrowing experience of trying to escape while Hampton was burning all around him. Like much of Hampton, the Hygieia fell victim during the burning of Hampton. Again, another story for a different day. Um, now, following the war, the Hygieia Hotel was that was built near Fort Monroe was, again, small, could accommodate when it was rebuilt, but there needed to be something more to it. What could bring people here in the midst of this rebuilding of the economy post-Civil War? Why not invent some resorts? So in 1874, Union Army veteran Harrison Phoebus moved to Hampton and purchased the burnt hulk and what was left in being used of the Hygieia. He promised to rebuild it to a grand resort. Of course, he got a little laughed at. because Why would people come here for, you know, with money? Um, but he said they were daft and he would prove them wrong. Now, he made good on his promise. Now, the, the Hygieia was now brimming with possibilities. It had state-of-the-art therapeutic baths. It had a grand ballroom that was the largest in the country at that time. They had direct access to the railroad because he convinced the railroad line, hey, run it straight to my hotel. People will pay to go there. And 
he had enough room to accommodate up to a thousand guests at a time. The Hygieia became a welcome respite for the guests to take in the fanciful amenities, live music, while enjoying the salt air and the pleasant breezes along that waterway, along with the beautiful beaches. Now, there are other hotels in similar vein that popped up within the Hampton Roads area, including ones down in Virginia Beach. Each park and each resort offered the similar amenities, unparalleled views of beautiful waterways, beautiful ballrooms with live music, electric lighting, which was rather wow for that time period, and ways to get on the railroad to the parks um, that we'll talk about in a second. You can rent bathing suits to use. I know that's rather kind of gross to think about today, but yeah, you could rent bathing suits to use. And these places became host to presidents, performers, stage actors like the Barrymores were there. Uh, one even was a, a recipient of one of Charles Lindbergh's communications when he was flying back across the Atlantic. And these were ways for businessmen to potentially reinvest in southeastern Virginia. One of the big notes that we're going to talk about today that had the long-standing history would be the parks. And this is about the time we see the birth of them. Now, while civil what Civil War widow Mary Ann Dobson Herbert saw along the beautiful beach in Hampton, an area called Phoebus, not Phoebus, excuse me, Buckrow, uh, was potential. In 1883, she established a boarding house and a bathhouse for visitors to Buckrow Beach. Two years later, local oystermen and entrepreneur James S. Darling also saw the same potential that Herbert did and proposed to the Old Point Railway and Electric Company to extend the trolley line all the way out to Buckrow. He built upon the idea that Herbert had founded and proposed this to be a new park for people to ride and pay to get to the end of that railway line with the promise of different things to do. You could walk around the promenade with your loved one. You could listen to music, dance in dance halls. You could look at a Nickelodeon machine. Um, and by 1887, a hotel, a large hotel, similar to the ones we just spoke of, the dance pavilion and an amusement park was open. Now, it must be noted here, the amusement parks at that time were very different than what we would think of today. They were ones that had little respites, uh, like I said, dance halls, casinos, things like that. They didn't have like the rides and the carnival-like um, atmosphere. Following the lead of Buckrow, soon similar parks opened in, at Ocean View in Norfolk, as well as Seaside in Virginia Beach. All parks were located in previously remote places, encouraging guests to ride to the end of the line to come to these places to hear again the live music, to go fishing, to frolic in the water in their rented bathing suits, and have special therapeutic baths, and just places to promenade and see and be seen by those who could afford to get there. But as much as these resorts brought to those who came to them, the truth was they were not accessible to most people. There, again, it was very difficult to travel there for the average person. And with horses or railroads and ferries being unreliable, it could also be kind of dangerous to get there. Additionally, the cost to go to such places was just out of reach for the average family, even in southeastern Virginia. There were too many responsibilities at home in this primarily agrarian community and no practical way to afford such luxuries. Traveling around even the region was difficult. So how did this all change? There was one particular event that did that. This is one of my favorite subjects to study. It's so much fun. World's fairs were all the rage in the late 19th to early 20th century. They were kind of the predecessor of the modern day theme park. These parks were anchored around central themes, like we had the Columbian Exposition up in Chicago that was um, an anniversary of Christopher Columbus sailing. Um, and they were also brought that history along with celebrating technology, industry, and anything you could want to present to people. It was a world of wonder. And of course, we wanted our own little slice of the pie for this. 
It's to celebrate the 300th anniversary of the landing of Jamestown, it was decided that there needed to be a World's Fair right here. Now, the first question was, where was it going to be held? Jamestown Island was not simply not accessible. It was small. It didn't have the infrastructure. And there are a lot of mosquitoes. If you've ever been there, they're the size of horses. Uh, many other parts of Tidewater threw their hats in the ring, but eventually Sewell's Point, an unincorporated town that became part of Norfolk, was chosen. Now, this was also swampy and rural and remote, but you could easily link up the railway lines on the south side and the ferry ports up here on the, or up on the peninsula. You can tell I live on the peninsula when I say up here. Anyway, um, to bring people in. And of course, we have these deep harbors and ports. And thus, a heavy inf infrastructure program was underway that could accommodate the throngs of guests they were expecting. It was not an easy feat to build this. Again, we have lots of lovely mosquitoes in the area. A lot of people and the workers got sick, and they had to throw it together rather quickly to the point where it wasn't entirely finished by the first day. But when it opened, it was open to a rousing amount of guests, including popular president Teddy Roosevelt. So while the central theme uh, was supposed to originally be 1607 settling, Teddy Roosevelt was loved. And his entire mission was how do we showcase our military? And so that theme was twisted to be a celebration of our military and our might. On this first day, he arrived and he was at the parade field and people were falling asleep in the heat and all these boring, long lectures. And being the rather exuberant man he was, he leapt up onto the table to give his speech. This is a rather tame picture from that day, but it really brought everyone to their feet, excited to be at the exposition, to celebrate our military, celebrate America in 1907. And after that, they had passing reviews of the military that stayed overnight just to see their commander in chief. And there were ships out in the harbor. In fact, a fun little note here is the Great White Fleet was launched from the Jamestown Exposition. Now, this entire place was a miniature city. The exposition was filled with museums or palaces of everything from agriculture to history. There were machines, techniques, arts. There was industry unlike anything many of these attendees ever saw before. And each palace's aesthetic was kind of a neo-colonial style, well, most of them were, in order to honor the architectural style of one of our Virginia's favorite sons, Thomas Jefferson. Now, many states also contrib contributed to this exposition where they would build ho homes along this entire walkway that resembled something exteriorly of their state, whether it was an architectural style or something historically significant. For instance, the Georgia house was designed as kind of a reproduction of the home where Teddy Roosevelt's mother was born in Georgia. The Kentucky one, though, was a fort that was built to resemble Daniel Boone's fort. But inside each of these houses was kind of, I guess you could say, a tourism pamphlet for that state. You had the industries that were important there. You had the things you can do. Hey, let's get people to move to our state and invest in our economy. The Pennsylvania house was a rather standout, which is right here, as it was a two-thirds scale replica of Independence Hall. Now, one of the buildings that I take note with is the, in a good way, is the Larkin Company's building, because all of these were rather different, um, though mostly in that neo-colonial style. But this one was for a company out of New York, and it was designed by their favorite up-and-coming architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. The exposition was also noted as being the first to be fully electrically illuminated. And I can't imagine what it must have been like in 1907 to see these bright white lights just bursting into the dark night sky. It must have been overwhelming. And of course, like we would think of with theme parks today and amusement parks, there were some other kind of odd attractions. The main thoroughfare was called the Warpath, which you see here. And along here, it featured all sorts of different things. Like there is a huge diorama of the battle between the USS Monitor and the CSS Virginia. There's a restaurant built to look like the Swiss Alps. And you could pan for gold in the Klondike. And you could see infant babies in early incubators having their lives saved. 
this is kind of a fun one. Um, there were also weirder kind of things like this one was Hell's Gate where you sat in a little boat and you went through a dark tunnel and they had scary animals throughout it, like bats and whatnot. And there were also along this way, horse tricks. There were, there was a woman who would ride a camel throughout it. And basically their entire point was to transport guests to far off in exotic places like the Middle East or Asia, where many of them probably would never go. And it was these foreign displays from these different expositions, not just Jamestown, but one later on that would inspire Walt Disney to design Epcot. This was also an early note on civil rights. Now, despite being 20th century, early 20th century America, in the South, the exposition was in many ways a place for all people, though segregated. In the midst of Jim Crowism, the Negro building was erected as the segregated part of the exposition. It was notable because it was designed, built, operated, everything by black Americans. In fact, it said that Teddy Roosevelt's two visits to the exposition, this was the only building he would go to. There were also other famous and notable figures, including Booker T. Washington, who went out of his way to make sure he came to show his face here. Now, despite it being very well attended, the fair was grossly mismanaged and considered an epic flop. An abundance of tickets were given away for free, and the cost of admission was just simply too low to cover the expenses. And these were supposed to be temporary fairs, so they built all this stuff just to last a year. By the end of the fair's run on December 1st, 1907, the grounds were largely abandoned and left in disrepair until 1917 when one monumental event occurred that made it get a second look, and that was World War I. The United States Navy needed a central location to build a good port, a good base for first the sea and then the air wing. And they looked at the property with some infrastructure already there, its location, it was perfect. Oh, gosh. Um, today, uh, the building, some of the buildings remain as part of Naval Station Norfolk. The state houses that survived are Admiral's Row. And ironically, the History Palace is used as a gymnasium. And of course, the Pennsylvania House remains as a beautiful focal point on this base. So while it fair itself was an epic failure, the exposition itself is what also birthed our tourism industry down in southeastern Virginia because it encouraged people to come and see our beautiful place. It created more infrastructure and it just changed the way people viewed the tidewater. When America entered World War I, like we were just speaking about, the population of Hampton Roads started to boom. Like in centuries prior, the Tidewater was an ideal spot due to its central location and on the East Coast and again its safe harbors. The military sprung new bases which created new job opportunities and of course the shipbuilding industry up th down there also boomed. People started to set permanent routes in Hampton Roads with these jobs and munitions factories at the bases and flying school and of course those who came here as a direct result of the military. It was not only the direct military support that was built, but also businesses were established to provide whatever may be needed to the blossoming population. Parks that sat at the end of railway lines provided a much needed respite for sailors, soldiers, and civilians to come together and chase the rest of the world away for hours. Parks like Buckrow, Ocean View, and Seaside continued to offer the dance halls and the bathhouses, but they also erected amusement park rides, roller coasters, contests, and new food vendors. One of them in particular is Abe Dumar. If you've been to Norfolk, you know Dumar's is pretty iconic, where he sold his famous waffle cones at Ocean View. Now, following the war and the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression left a pall upon most of America. While ownerships took measures to scale back the entertainment and the contest, they still fulfilled that need for these soldiers and sailors and locals to have this respite and provide that escape from the economic depression while also providing jobs for some of the local community. It was during this time that the era of travel was being, re was being reserved for the rich, 
start to erode. But of course, we got to talk about one notable thing. During the time, during this time, also segregated parks were founded for Black Americans, such as Seaview in Virginia Beach, which you see here, and Bayshore in Hampton. In the founding of both parks, financing was difficult to secure, and banks did not readily lend to Black Americans. Seaview was the segregated park on the south side of Hampton Roads in Virginia Beach. Dr. Dudley Cooper, who was the owner and operator of Ocean View Amusement Park, drew the ire of many in the community when he helped secure the financing to build this park. The challenge was finding a place to build it at, as at that time, Norfolk did not allow Black Americans to be on the beaches. So it was built just over the line in Virginia Beach on the Chesapeake Bay. The park featured a dance hall, a handful of rides, live music, and an impressive line of performers, including Louis Armstrong. There was a nice spread put in Life magazine, actually uh, touting it as the greatest resort for Black Americans. Now, Bayshore had a bit of a different origin story. It was very notable because the park, which was found in late, originally in the 19th century, was entirely financed, owned, and operated by Black Americans. While Seaview sat some distance from Ocean View, Bayshore sat literally right next to Buckrow Beach. And there was only a thin fence dividing the two. It featured similar amenities as the park next door, but the financing wasn't there to purchase high-end attractions that were featured at Buckrow. Now, while these parks were a welcomed and appreciated getaway for Black Americans, it was also noted that due to the restrictions we previously mentioned, they were not equal. I love this video. World War II was a time of tragedy and magnificent change in American society. Like World War I, the era was one that saw a blossoming in Hampton Roads population. And just a side note, this was filmed at Seaview. These parks provided jobs for the local community. They were a place for local kids to hang out in the afternoon and the weak and weary soldiers and sailors to come and have some respite. Now, during the war itself, Ocean View erected a giant screen along the water side of the park as an attempt to kind of shield it from being seen to the U-boats that sat just off the coast. They also would have people come out, um, recruiters, and ways you could give back to the war effort throughout it. The, the common note between all these parks were, how do we support the war effort and our boys overseas? The thrills of the parks were added to by a blossoming motor vehicle um, industry, which saw the beginning of the end of streetcars that ferried passengers to their final destinations at the end of these railway lines. And they were replaced just after the war by buses. But everything we know about amusement parks today was truly defined by the next generation of patrons. I would like to introduce you to Harry and Evelyn Cantor. These are my grandparents. And this is my mother who's here today, took this picture of them in Virginia Beach. Now, following the end of World War II, the greatest generation gave birth to the baby boomers. A vibrant middle class was established and former service members took advantage of their GI Bill benefits. Employers started offering incentives and time off. And these greatest generation parents wanted to take their kids to do things they weren't able to do when they were younger. And during this, the resort areas began to rebrand themselves from being kind of this ritzy, snobbish uh, kind of atmosphere to being one that invited families. They wanted to give families a clean and affordable place to stay, entertainment that would really be geared towards their children, and good meals at affordable prices. And this is where we see what we think of as these resorts come to life. The local parks abandoned the once enjoyed amenities like the bathhouses and rented bathing suits in order to attract the middle-class demographic. New rides were added to excite in age, age groups from the youngest guests to the most experienced thrill ride connoisseur. Also added were the park to parks like Buckrow were loud games, affordable and delicious concession stands, and of course, roller coasters. 
There were animatronics that elated and frightened the guests, including one that was apparently a large woman who would cackle at people. That sounds terrifying. Uh, the smell of cotton candy and popcorn just wafted through the air and the Calliope music of carousels sang in the gentle breeze. Thus was a beautiful playland where families traveled from all over year after year to enjoy themselves. For locals, these parks continued to provide jobs and respite. Parents would give their kids some pocket money and send them, set them loose at the parks for the afternoon. And they continued to be idyllic, fun lands that catered to the greatest generation and the baby boomers of tourists. There are also some notes of kitchen fun there, uh, which was uh, a little nice part of this tourism era. Now, one of the more lesser well-known ones was in Virginia Beach called Frontier City. And my, my mom would tell me stories of going there as a kid. And it was a Wild West theme park. And this was an era where you got to re reenact what you saw in Gunsmoke and Lone Ranger. You could see a bank being robbed. You can get wooden nickels and get newspapers printed. You could play, uh, though it's not very, um, it's not very, sure today to say this, but uh, cowboys and Indians throughout. And in 1964, but after a very short life in 1964, this park shut down and the land was sold, though it's still very wonderfully remembered. Also in Portsmouth was Coleman's Winter Wonderland, and it's one of the more beloved and unique attractions from my home. Inspired by department store windows in New York City, the nurseries Second owner, Junie Lancaster, wanted to bring a sense of spirit to the local community during the holiday season. He would add animatronics year after year and kept the emission free. And throughout it, you had the palace, a palace with uh, different um, clowns that were you know, in a carnival. There was a snowman and there was all sorts of different things, including a teddy bear town. And of course, Junie's model railroad display. Now, Coleman's again remained true to Junie's desire to be free to anyone in the area or anyone who came in, people who come in from all over the country. And generations came year after year to the display itself to prove why it was an anchor in the, in the community. However, in 2003, a difficult decision was made to close Coleman's and sell the land for development. Now, we alluded to this earlier, but Bayshore and Seaview were hardly equal to Buckrow Beach and Ocean View, respectively. While both parks were deeply appreciated oases for the Black American community, there were notes that showed the difference. An example of this would be the Buckrow Beach carousel that we saw earlier. It had handcrafted horses. It was a work of art, and yet the one at Bayshore was a common carnival fiberglass. The separation was so dramatic that a fence ran through the beach into the water, separating swimmers from even entering the same zone as one another. One woman remembered as a child looking through the fence over to Bayshore and wondering why it was taken to that level as the same waters washed over her as they did Black Americans. But still, we had the golden era of tourism. It was truly a magical time where memories were made for not only local for tourists, but locals alike. First dates were had there, memories made, photographs taken, and life was blissful for many. These parks saw such an evolution over just such a short time frame. Locals worked concession stands in the afternoon, hung out with their friends, enjoyed the sights and sounds of each of these small ma and pop parks, and however, like all good things, the era of playful innocence would have to come to an end. The first victims of the end of the golden era of tourism were Black American parks. With the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the white-only parks were forced to desegregate. Black American community, communities celebrated this by visiting the once off-limits parks. With attendance steeply dropping, this spelled the end for both Bayshore and Seaview. Everyone thought that this magical era couldn't come to an end, but in a matter of a short time, they did. In 1975, excuse me, King's Dominion was open in Doswell and more pertinent to the parks we're speaking of today, Bush Gardens, the old country, opened in Williamsburg. This is one of their original 
roller coasters. These two corporate-owned parks had state-of-the-art attractions. They had a single admission price while local parks you paid per ride. And each was beautifully themed throughout. They began to strangle the different parks and attractions in neighboring cities. Compounding the problem was the gas crisis of the late 1970s. People stopped traveling as much and, and instead chose to stay home. For small parks, this was stripping away a huge chunk of their revenue. One by one, each one of these attractions and parks slowly began to close. Perhaps one of the more notable closures is Ocean View Amusement Park. When the park shuttered, the owners made an agreement with the Playboy Film Production Company that in exchange for using the grounds to film the movie, the production team would be responsible for dismantling the rides, including the Skyrocket roller coaster. The cheesy made-for-TV movie, Death for Ocean View, which I do not recommend watching. It's an hour of your life you won't get back. Um, show glimpses into the park. But the most memorable moment was the antique roller coaster coming down. The Skyrocket, uh, for many years, was viewed by many parents as unsafe, and they wouldn't let their kids ride on it. But the rocket had the final say. The team attempted to dynamite it, but the coaster didn't budge. They tried again, still nothing. Finally, they saw through, they sawed through the timbers and coated the entire ride with gasoline and tied bulldozers. And in this cinematic moment, the roller coaster came down like a deck of cards. And I actually have a little piece of the skyrocket I meant to bring with me today that I left at home. I apologize for that. There were a lot of gasps that day seeing this icon. Uh, coming down, and many children were sad to see their beloved coaster go. In 1985, Buckrow Beach was the last of the major parks to close, with Busch Gardens having opened a second major roller coaster that the year before, the Big Bad Wolf. There was no way to compete. When the lights were shut down on September 5th, 1985, so came a quiet end to Tidewater's golden age of tourism. The parks were left in disrepair, dismantled and abandoned as a whole new generation of tourists began forging memories at corporate parks and attractions that replaced the predecessors. Now, after its presentation, I would encourage you to go out to the gallery right, out, uh, just right outside here, and there's a piece from one of the rides from Buckrow. It's a little airplane. It's rather, it's wonderful to see. Now we have to ask the question, is it all truly lost? And I would be amiss not to mention this next one. Who's heard of this? Yeah, this is a fun story. Okay. There were a few attempts to recapture the kitsch of that earlier era. And one of those includes President's Park, which once sat on the York County side of Williamsburg. Conceived by Everett Haley Newman and created by David Atticus, sorry, President's Park was opened near Water Country, USA in, again, York County. It opened in 2004, featuring busts from every president through George W. Bush, and they sat on 10 acres of properties. Now, these busts are rather overwhelming, sitting 16 to 20 feet tall, and beautiful works of art with detail, including nose pieces and texture and the neckties. There was a fuselage model or modeled fuselage for Air Force One. There were reproductions, the first lady gowns, and they also inherited the collection from the defunct presidential pet museum, which used to sit in Annapolis, Maryland. However, due to the excessive cost to maintain these fiberglass busts that sat on steel structures, the height mission and the less than visible location, it and being considered, considered tacky by some, the, the park officially closed in 2010 after just six years. In 2013, local contractor Howard Hankins was tasked with removing the bus from the abandoned property. He couldn't bring himself to destroy them, so he spent $50,000 in two weeks to move these buses to, to his private property, approximately 10 miles away in Croker. Today, the bus continue to languish on his property while various ideas have been pitched in order to do something with them. One of them was Reason of America would move them up to Maine. One of the more entertaining one was moving them to Doswell to create a water park, which is kind of strange. 
but there they sit. And it's kind of a, I have to admit, a planet of the, planet of the apes experience going back there. It's this house, and then you walk back past goats and chickens, and then these busts come out of nowhere. Um, my daughter likes to mention the fact that she found a hornet's nest in one of the nostrils, and it's sitting in kind of a swampy area. You don't know what snakes are in there, and they are falling apart, but seem to have this romantic afterlife. I like to always tell the little uh, historical irony that in route to this location, the Abraham Lincoln bus fell off the flatbed truck and had a big hole right here. That's rather strange. Today, a local photographer who's from the Richmond area, John Plaschel, works with Hankins and he gives tours that are constantly sold out. I would recommend looking him up if you want to go on these. It's a it's an odd experience to, to go on. Um, now, the saddest of the closures for me was Coleman's Winter Wonderland. I was born in 1983, so I don't remember much of these wonderful places. And that's me and my older sister at Coleman's. And this was a place that was very vibrant, and, and it created those warm memories. Now that we've discussed the beginnings and unfortunate ends that we have to examine, uh, excuse me, within ourselves and ask, if these places are no longer there for you to attend, are they ever truly gone? Now, I say no. Aside from memories and photos and other artifacts, there are still vestiges of these places around. You can ride Buckrose Carousel down in downtown Hampton. It's been beautifully preserved by Hampton History Museum. The Ocean View Station Museum and Mary Pretlow Library in Norfolk, which sits right across from where Ocean View amusement park used to be, has artifacts, including one of the cars from the Skyrocket. And the Coleman's collection is put on display in Portsmouth each year. And there are other items that you will find around the country. They are still influencing our culture in southeastern Virginia. The key is, if we fixate on these places that are no longer around, do we recognize the invaluable importance of new things that we have since? where there are many different wonderful things to go to, like the Military Aviation Museum, one of my favorite places, down in Virginia Beach, and the various other attractions that we have today. Now, what we should always do is keep one hand or foot in the past and the other one in the future, bringing them together to keep them firmly planted from where we were going to where we will be. And thank you. I think Graham's going to walk around. If you have questions, comments, want to throw tomatoes at my head, feel free. I know my daughter's going to chirp up with a question for too long. She always does. <laughs> Why no mention of Colonial Beach? It was mostly just focused on the like Buckrow and Bayshore and ocean view and a little bit of seaside in there on that very tiny corner. So I apologize for that. Growing up as a kid, we went to the Chamberlain Hotel. Can What is it doing now? It was a beautiful structure and an enormous structure. Can you elaborate, please? Absolutely. And that's a great question. So the Hygieia Hotel Resort that we talked about was demolished in order to expand Fort Monroe. But the Chamberlain was remained a fixture there that was built right next to it. Today, it is used as a, a retirement community. Um, it has been beautifully restored. Uh, I felt very lucky to give a couple lectures there. And so it, it's now a nice focal point. Uh, Fort Monroe in general has been well cared for since the base was closed and they continue to preserve that history there, including the Chamberlain. Um, it's very beautiful. It's just not accessible to go into because of it being an actual living situation. So thank you for asking that. I hope that answers your question. Oh, Roma's my baby. Um, Roma was a semi-rigid dirigible that was purchased from Italy in 1921 and brought over to be part of the Army Air Service. Uh, she was the largest airship in our fleet at that time. Uh, she was still in kind of 
tough condition. Um, so on February 21st, 1922, it crashed in Norfolk during a trial flight, killing 34 of the 45 um, men, officers, and civilians on board. It was the deadliest disaster of US hydrogen airship, but it was forgotten. And it's been my mission for, gosh, 13, 14 years now to tell their story, bring their you know, memories back and let them be remembered. It's been my passion. So uh, Murder Mayhem is, was a, 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 is it gross if I say it was a fun book to write? I don't know. Um, but every chapter is a different story looking at different struggles, darker moments within the Hampton Roads community. Uh, so we talk about like the cannibalism that happened in Jamestown during the, the starving time. We talk about the different riots. We talk about the burning of Hampton. We go into even kind of a fun little practical joke that was played in Virginia Beach by the end. But it's all these darker notes that I feel like also construct the narrative of what an area is because you don't talk about those things. You don't really understand what bonds a community together and where you learn from. So um, that one was an interesting one to write. But like I said, each chapter is a different story starting in 1609 all the way through present day. So thank you. Now my daughter has a question. So over the course of writing Lost Attractions, what was your favorite um, attraction to look at? I think it would have to be the roller coasters. I, I am a bit of a roller coaster nut, as my children know. Um, I rode my first, the first roller coaster that got me over my fear of roller coasters was the Loch Ness Monster at Bush Gardens when I rode it with my uncle. And so it was looking at these roller coasters, what they were, how they influenced the culture, what people remembered about them. And the Skyrocket was com completely fascinating because of that video we have. Again, it's a terrible movie, but that scene is worth seeing. Um, so it was looking at that and that change and then also getting to know the um, community and tourism culture that your grandparents grew up with, where that didn't really exist by the time I was born. So thank you. That's a good question, Emmy. Thank you. Anything else? Oh. <laughs> in, the, in the town of Phoebus, uh, what's going on now? Is that like an art center or something? It is um, an interesting place and it's being kind of re-envisioned, but not tearing down buildings. So they're making it very, how do I say this, millennial, um, where you have a lot of breweries that are popping up and uh, craft foods and whatnot. But it's really kind of bringing community back to Phoebus and inv investing money. It, it's, I know one of my uh, friends grew up in Phoebus and he kind of cringes going there now, but um, it, it it's a nice way to see Phoebus being given a new birth and bringing people back to it, where when the base was gone, it was abandoned. Uh, but some of the stores that were there, Bender's Books is still there, um, but you see the, the storefronts are still very much preserved. And so it, it's, it's cool to see it being rebirthed, so to say. Mm -hmm. I have a suggestion for your next book. I would love that. The Jamestown Exposition. Do you know of anyone who's written a book about that? Uh, my colleague, Amy Watershersinski, wrote two Images of America books, but they are mostly images, and she did a fine job really investing in the history. But I think the the stories from the exposition, exposition themselves itself is very, very compelling, and it's fascinating to look at from Teddy Roosevelt to the Great White Fleet to um, the Japanese ambassador came here on his tour of America because the West Coast didn't want him. And so, you know, kind of looking at how that influenced into the Navy today, my father's retired Navy, my husband's in the Navy. So being very familiar with that base and seeing the vestiges that still exist. Um, it is a fascinating story. So thank you. Yeah, I might do that. There's a, um, I'll just say this, that when I was a child, there was, there was a house on North Allen Avenue that was being torn down. And I was walking by it one Sunday going from church to my grandmother's house. And I found amidst the rubble of this house that was being torn down, uh, a, a book that had been published for traveling salesmen to in, uh, entice them to come to the exposition. And oh, it's wow. a very elaborate book. It's not like a pamphlet. It was a hard, it would look like a high school yearbook, wow. but it was the, uh, the, the intended audience was traveling salesmen. And it was a description of all the things that they could see and do at the Jamestown exposition. So I, 
I guess the, the statute of limitations has run out. I pinched it, <laughs> and I, somewhere in my house I have it. But it was a, a very um, interesting publication. And that it, it definitely, I think that's very identifiable with the communities that they were trying to attract, and particular salesmen. You know, had all this industry there. It's like, okay, how can we get them to sell our product? How can we invite them to have product knowledge like you would think of in sales today? Um, and also attracting families and people who camp out. There was a hotel inside the grounds called Inside In um, that people come to. So it really reached out to that. I, I would love to see that book. That's fascinating. So thank you. I'm going to give Graham my step tracker today so I can gain more steps. <laughs> it seems to me that it seems to me there was an amusement park uh, right on the boardwalk in Virginia Beach around 30th Street, 31st or somewhere in there. I think they call it Seaside Park. Is mm -hmm. that correct? You didn't mention that, I don't think, in this. It, um, the unfortunate thing, there's not a lot uh, out about it. Um, one of the more notable parts was the Peppermint Beach Club that was there. Uh, it did have a small roller coaster, uh, Leap the Dips type. And, but the Peppermint Beach Club had an afterlife too and was around for a long time. Um, but that was built during the Golden Age tourism. And it was put at the end of 17th Street. Um, and so it's that main thoroughfare down Shore Drive, um, that's where the railway line would take you into where um, Seaside was. And it was flanked by these grand dames of the Atlantic, these hotels and resorts that were later a lot of them were either burned or they were destroyed in hurricanes and the last vestige would be the cavalier but then you have the families that would come to seaside and then up the road they go to 14 uh frontier city for those short period of time but it was much much smaller and there's not a lot of unfortunately research about it that can be found so i talk to my mom sometimes about it <laughs> and there's a little little park there now but it's definitely not the same as what was there so thank you Thank you very much, Nancy. Thank She'll you. be up in a lobby signing copies of her book. Thank you all. And, and I do encourage you, if you haven't been back to the museum since it reopened, walk around. It is outstanding. And please do. And thank you again for joining me today.